We're going to continue this morning looking at that passage that Ali has just read for us in Colossians. We've been working this term through this letter to the church in this little town called Colossae, and we're up to the third chapter. It's worth noting, of course, that Paul, when he wrote the letter, just like when you write a letter, didn't have any chapters in it. This is just the bit that we're up to next, so that's what we're looking at. I'm going to ask God to help us, and uh, we'll dive in. Father, we do give you thanks and praise for your goodness. Thank you for preserving this letter, this ancient letter. Help it to live here this morning by the work of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that he's present and ask that he would be at work for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, it's a, it's a fantastic passage. I said last week that last week's passage was really dense, packed with information. You'll be surprised to know, since it's one sentence away from last week's, that it's the same again today. But I wanted to give you two foundational ideas that will help us to make sense of the passage that's before us. The first has to do with baptism. Baptism was practiced throughout the early church and was absolutely the standard for every believer. What did baptism do? Well, in the reading that we heard from uh, Lorraine earlier, we saw in Romans chapter 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. What I want you to know this morning before we dive into what is really going to be a sermon about killing sin, the first thing I want you to know is that baptism joins us into Jesus' story. Baptism joins us into Jesus' story. What do I mean? Well, when we're baptized into Jesus, our death, his death are joined together. We die spiritually with Jesus. His life, his resurrection, spiritually is our life. And his new seat in glory That's our seat, spiritually. Our baptism joins us into Jesus' story. The second thing is to encourage you that Jesus' story is bigger than possibly what you're thinking this morning. Jesus' story, we're joined into with baptism, and that that story is bigger than you might have thought. Now I'm going to throw some big words on the screen, but bear with me, you'll, you'll figure it out. Okay, so incarnation. Jesus' story starts with the incarnation. That's him Becoming flesh, becoming a baby. So Jesus is born. We know about that. We know about his crucifixion. That's when Jesus dies on the cross. Did he stay dead, church? Good answer, good answer. If you don't know that already, come back for Easter. Right? Okay, so Jesus' incarnation, his crucifixion, and then we have gloriously his resurrection. How wonderful. Now, for most of us, we know these parts. But there are two more parts to Jesus' story. There is his exaltation. Bear with me. After he came to life again, his disciples saw him, and then he was taken up to glory to be with his heavenly father. That's his exaltation. And one more thing, which I did not know when I was a kid growing up, the Bible tells us that one day Jesus will return. He will come back to earth to judge the earth. Okay? Now, I tell you this because my observation is that most of us are relatively comfortable with the first part. It's earthly and it's historical. It happened in the past and it tells us how Jesus can be our saviour. Fantastic. The, the, The next bit tells us about the future. It's heavenly in direction and it shows us how Jesus is the Lord. My reflection as we had a chat as a staff team was earlier this week, 
I reckon our church more comfortably focuses on Jesus as saviour than this concept of the future in the heavenlies where Jesus is Lord. We need both of these parts to be together. We need to know our story is joined to Jesus. And we need to know that his story is bigger, perhaps, than we were thinking this morning. Keep these in mind and come with me to this picture here. Now, does anyone know who this bloke is? Johnny Wilkinson. Does anyone know what he is doing here? He's about to score, yes? On the balance of probability, he's about to kick some points in a rugby game. If you're unfamiliar with rugby, don't worry. You've saved yourself a lot of grief from this bloke here, okay? Essentially, what he's doing here, as he takes this very funny position, you'll see rugby league players, a whole bunch of people do this. But what he's doing as he takes this funny position is he's visualising what happens next. Okay, So he's looking at the ball, and then he's imagining it going up and going through the two sticks to score the, the points, right? That's what he's doing, visualisation. And sports people use this all the time. They imagine the future that they want. Why? Why do they do this? Because our action follows our mind. Our action follows our mind. Now, that's a really obvious point at some level, but it's going to be really helpful as we look at Colossians chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles there, please open them and uh, have a look with me at verses 1 to 2. Paul writes, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So what we see here is that each part of what Paul has just told us is really important. So here's the first thing. Set your mind on things above. Where is Jesus? He's no longer on earth. He is in heaven. He's above. What does that tell us? It tells us about his rule and authority. He is higher. He is over every rule and authority on earth. Okay? He is over all. So he's, he's seated above. He is seated, it says. Why seated? I, I, I was going down the line and I was thinking, well, most of us don't work seated. And then I thought about bus drivers and then I thought about everybody who's a keyboard jockey and actually a whole bunch of us do our work seated, right? Which is disappointing because it was, it was going to be a really great point. But here's the point. The reason that Jesus is seated, the reason that Jesus is seated is because his work is done. Okay? He's not at a terminal doing work. Okay? So Jesus is raised up and then he's seated because everything that he needed to do was done here, right? In his death and his resurrection. Jesus paid the price for our sin, conquered the devil, and now rules. So he's seated above, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Why is that? Well, he's God's right-hand man. He's, he's the, in the most favoured position. So Jesus is above, he's seated, and he's at the right hand which means that a promise like Matthew 28 can be made. Matthew 28, end of Jesus' account, sorry, Matthew's account of Jesus' life. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. How can Jesus have all that authority? Because he's above, he's seated, and he's at the right hand of the Father. So what do we need to do? We need to remember to look up at Jesus. It's a funny thing, though. It's not easy for us to turn our minds to Jesus because you and I are flooded with inputs from the world. What sort of information do we get? Well, we get information, very important information, of course, from Netflix, Uh, from the things that we read, from our social media, uh, from the books that we look at, from our TV. 
We are flooded with information. In fact, even as you're sitting here this morning, some of you will get information coming up on your little thing in your pocket. And it'll say it's very important that you know Donald Trump has done something very significant a second ago. Or that uh, some celebrity had a hair meltdown or something. They just pop up on our thing. Has anyone had this? Do you know what I'm talking about? We get distracted and our minds, which are supposed to be lifted up, get dragged down to earth, don't they? On top of that, not only do we get a whole bunch of inputs that take us to the earthly level, we have a whole bunch of distractions as well, don't we? Our health can distract us, our holidays can distract us, our habits, a whole bunch of different stuff. We can get distracted and profoundly earthly bound. So how on earth are we supposed to lift our minds up to see Jesus at the right hand of the Father? Well, I would suggest to you that it is almost impossible without God's word, prayer, and fellowship. That these three things, God's word, prayer, and fellowship, are most likely inputs to lift your mind up. See, I'd ask you, if you don't, oh, look, it's been a busy week. I, I had no time to read my Bible this week. That's okay. I know where your mind will be. Oh, look, I haven't prayed for the last week because, um, well, you know, like things were going pretty well, so I didn't really think about God. I know where your mind will be. Well, I, I couldn't come to, to, to church. I, I had a new caravan to check out and I needed to. I know where your mind will be. Our world has a gravity to it. It's going to take our eyes down to earth. Where are we going to find encouragement to lift our eyes up? It's, it's in God's word. It's in speaking with our heavenly father and it's hanging out with his people who have this same goal. If we do none of those things, guess what? I know where your mind will be. And, and I'm, no, I'm no magician. I just know that Netflix won't encourage you to exalt Jesus, will it? Okay, think about that and come back to me a little bit later once you've had a chance to think about it. It won't. Now, I had a, I had a wonderful thing this morning. Uh, you know, my kids are bigger now, and I still love doing this. They'll run in. It's Father's Day, right? And so they'll run in, and we'll all have a big hug underneath the covers, right? And my little boy loves pulling it up over his head so that he's totally hidden in the bed, right? Even today still, right? I don't talk about my kids very much, but it's a beautiful thing, right? Do you know this wonderful, beautiful thing that can be called wrapped up in love? Do, do you know what that is? Wrapped up in love, hidden in there. If, if you know that, that's beautiful. If you don't, it is truly spectacular. Keep that idea in mind. Have a look at verses 3 to 4 with me. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's a pretty beautiful point. What he's saying here is that our future is now hidden, is now wrapped up with Jesus. When, when, we, when we were baptized, we were joined spiritually into Jesus' story. So his future is our future. And so our future is now with Jesus. That is a beautiful truth. We know, because the Bible tells us, that he will return in glory. And when that happens, the beautiful truth is, when he returns in, in glory, we will be vindicated. Do you know, I don't see many of us walking around with I'm with Jesus t-shirts, right? Perhaps we should make them, right? I'm with Jesus. I don't see that happening very often. And most of the time, if someone bumps into you in the street, they won't know that you're with Jesus, Hopefully, as we live new life for Jesus, they'll eventually figure it out, right? But they don't know immediately we meet them. 
Do you know on the day when Jesus returns in glory, it will be revealed that you are with Jesus? Because we will do this. I'm with him. He's come back. I'm with him. And, and I don't think we'll go, well, we, won't, we won't look at everyone else and go, no, 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 or something like that. That won't happen. But here's the thing. Vindication is a beautiful thing, right? People may have mocked you for knowing Jesus. People might have belittled you. People might have talked behind your back. On the day when he returns, you will be proud to say, that is my saviour. When he returns in glory, you will be vindicated. It is a beautiful day that is before us. And so we need to remember to look forward to the day when Jesus will return. We we should long for that day. Does anyone remember Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Do anyone remember that that book? There's a great quote here from um, Stephen Covey. And I want you to listen to it because it's helpful for this idea. He says this. He says, Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Now, I think that's profoundly beautiful. If you haven't followed, here's what he's saying. From little things. Big things grow. Come on, you with me, church? Come on. Yes, okay. That's what he's saying. Tiny decisions bear huge fruit in our lives. And so the encouragement here is that you and I would sow a heavenly habit. Start sowing into your minds the desire, the destiny of heaven. Now, today, do it now. Because one day you'll see it by sight. Does anyone know what this terrible thing is? Under the microscope, this is a cancer cell. Horrible, right? This is also not a very nice thing. It's a wart, right? And here's the thing. You can live with one, but not the other. Here's my, here's my question. Is sin, we're talking about sin today, church. Is sin a cancer to be fought or a wart that can be hidden without consequences? Is, cancer a, is, is sin a cancer or is it a wart that can be hidden without consequences? See, a wart's inconvenient, right? But it won't kill you. And I wonder if we've decided that our sin is kind of, well, it's just part of me. And if I put a band-aid on, no one will see it. And it's not really doing any great problems. I particularly put a band-aid on the car park before I walk into church, yes? So is sin killing us or just slightly awkward? Have a listen to the next couple of verses. In chapter 3, verse 5, it says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now this is a, uh, this is a pretty interesting part of this passage. And it's a funny thing to think, did that really just say the wrath of God? Because haven't we moved past that? I mean, isn't this all the preaching that we want to avoid, right? No more Bible bashes and no more wrath of God, please. And here's what I'd say. If that was the emphasis every week, it's wrong. But the truth that God is angry with sin isn't wrong. Here it is in the passage. We've just come across it because it's what's next. 
I want you to know this morning that God loves us deeply. Secondly, I want you to know that God is deeply just and holy. And what that means thirdly is that God will judge sin. He will. He can't let it go through to the keeper because it damages us and it grieves him. God will judge sin. And so we should anticipate judgment. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. In other words, because we know a day of judgment is coming, because Jesus will return and we're going to meet him, you could anticipate that and, well, start getting rid of stuff now that won't be acceptable in his sight then. Does that make sense? And so I want to remind you this morning that sin is fatal and not your friend. You you know, you, you can put a two dots and a little smiley on top of your wart, right? There are not too many people who are embracing their cancer. Sin is fatal and is not your friend. Now, what about this list? I mean, what a dreadfully awkward thing to happen on a Sunday morning. Is that right? Who wants to look at this list, okay? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. And then the fourth thing was greed. And you go, Paul, were you kind of on a theme there and then dropped off the end? How come greed is on this list that seems to be all about sexual things? What's the story? Well, I thought about that, and we had a really good moment in our staff meeting this week, where our reflection led us to think it's actually possibly a summary of those four things. Why? Well, because greed, because it wants more outside of God's good design. What's God's good design for sex? Where does God want us to enjoy sex? In marriage, in the commitment of marriage between a husband and a wife. That's, that's his good boundary for sex. And so sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires are greed because they take us beyond the boundary of what is good for us. Do you see? And then there was a strange bit he added, which is idolatry. And you go, hang on, how is, how is greed about my sex idolatry? Well, here's why. Because every decision I make to choose greedily to indulge sex outside of God's good design is saying to Jesus, actually, Jesus, I just, look, I'm just going to take you off the throne for a bit and I'm going to sit in charge and make decisions about my life. You don't get to have a call on my sex life, right? I get to be in charge of that. As soon as we do that, we're enthroning ourselves and dethroning Jesus. Do you see? And so amazingly, bizarrely, this list of four things is about greed and idolatry. Do you see? Uh, I don't know when the last time you were with an open fire. We actually had a great time recently. Family went away and we had an open fire with, you know, a little fire pit thing. Fantastic. The kids were burning marshmallows. Outstanding. Uh, Not a lot of eating, but lots of burning of marshmallows. Um, as, as anyone, would anyone wear a polyester jacket near an open fire? Incidentally, safety tip, if you're going to say yes to that, the answer is no. Don't do that, okay? Imagine, imagine you had a jacket. Do you think you'd keep wearing a burning jacket? Do you think anyone would keep wearing a burning jacket? Don't, know, don't think too long in this church. The answer is, okay, great, brilliant. I'm delighted that you wouldn't. We want to throw it off, right? We want to throw it off. H- have a look with me at verses 7 to 8. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves, you must throw off 
all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. You see, what Paul is saying here is we need to take action on our sin. You know, our church has got a name. Does anyone know what our church is called? That's right, it's called New Life. In order for there to be a new life, there must be an old life. This is radical, right? This is really stretching your intellect on a Sunday morning. So in order for there to be a new life, there must be an old life. If you claim to be living new life with Jesus, there must be a distinction between the old and how you live today. And so you have been called to follow a new master. You're not not following yourself anymore. You're following Jesus. And, And when we do this, he is saying your speech too must be sanctified. One of the marks that you're in a new life is that your speech must be made new. And so we must remember to be who we are. If you're a new person, you'll be made new in all areas, including the things that you say. Now, I say your lips because I reckon that's the connecting thread between this group of things here. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language are all about our lips. And if you were to get that right, I guess it would be very ordinary holiness, wouldn't it? Because there are some people who are just good at making sure that they're not rude, right? And they're, good, they're smart enough not to slander other people in your presence, right? Here's the thing. It's very ordinary But God wants us to be wholly transformed in our lives, to be wholly transformed. It's a funny thing I explained to the the previous service. Uh, When I I really got Jesus in in about year nine in high school, I remember me and a couple of mates decided that we were following Jesus and that what needed to change was our language. Couldn't swear anymore, right? And so we decided to have a corporate little holy club, all right? And the way it was, was if anybody swore out of the three of us, the other two guys would get to punch him as hard as they could. It's fantastically Pavlovian, right? I swear and I get hurt. Oh, I don't think I want to do that anymore, right? It was hilarious. It's very male, right? And it's very juvenile, okay? But here's what I say to you. We stopped swearing. We literally beat the swearing out of each other. It was fantastic, right? But here's the thing. To claim that you've been made new but have no change in your lips is not good. We see that again here. There's a man called John Owen. He lived in 1656. That's a long time ago. Okay, He's a Puritan. And he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin in the Believer. Long name. What does he mean? Look at these two quotes. He says, always be killing sin. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. Helpful tip. Secondly, he says, there is no death for sin without the death of Christ. Otherwise, what he says is what will turn out is we'll be moral police. We'll say to you, you need to stop sinning. And if you don't know Jesus and the forgiveness he won for you on the cross, then you will work really hard to try and stop doing sin and you will fail endlessly. We aren't moral in that sense. What we are is we're calling you to live up to the death of Jesus. Because he died, you can say no to sin and yes, to righteousness. And so he introduces us to this wonderful word, mortification, which someone told me this morning is also a Christian death metal band. Okay, fine, cool name. But here's what it means. What we're supposed to be is we're, we're supposed to be killing sin. And I would say to you as your pastor, speaking to myself, I need to be more energetic at doing this. 
more like a wart than a cancer, I think. He goes on on this idea of speech. Have a look what he says in verses 9 to 11. He says, Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So he says lying, this new speech, this new person shouldn't lie. Do not lie, he says. It's actually got its own line, which is quite remarkable. And then he says we have a new home and we have a new family. We are supposed to be truth people. Why? Jesus says, I am the way, the, some of you know this, I am the way, the, and the life, right? If we're following the one who is the truth and you are saved by the truth, do you think that you can be people who lie any longer? Think with me, church. Do you think you can be people who lie any longer? That's correct. Well done. You're exactly right. We can't do that anymore. We are called to be part of a transformed family. And this picture is actually brilliant. Have a look with me in Revelation uh, chapter 7 and verse 9. It's this wonderful vision. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne of God and before the land. Who are you, church? You are people who will gather around the throne of Jesus at the end. And in that place... There's a great line from a sermon I, I, I listened to this week. It said, get ready for your new family in a space without race, face, or social place. What, what, what's he saying? Barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. He says, there'll be no social standing in that church. There'll be no racial divisions in that church. When we stand before Jesus, we will be one holy, beautiful people. And do you know what? I see that this morning. And I want to see it more and more and more people from every nation, transformed by their love of Jesus. And since that's where we're headed, truth people, we should live as truth people when it's not Sunday, right? So do not lie, he says. So what could we do if we've understood what Paul said here this morning? What could we do? I want to suggest three ways that we could respond. That the first way that we could respond is to close our eyes. Man, I just sat through church on Father's Day. Come on, man. If there are any good points in heaven, I just got one. Right? Yeah, of course I did. I just got one. That's pretty good. I, I don't need to worry about all these heavenly things. I'm going to obsess on earthly matters and earthly inputs. Oh, is that a notification on my phone? I'd better find out. I'm going to obsess on earthly matters. And when we do that, I guarantee you, because I don't know you at all, but I guarantee you that what will follow is that you will excuse your sin. You might hate it in someone else over there, but you'll give yourself a free pass in here. And what will be the consequences of that? What will be the outcome of making that choice this morning? You'll continue to damage yourself and others. That's what will happen. But I don't want that for you, church. I don't think anyone who's heard this will do that. So what can we do? Well, we can start by looking in. We can look in. Ask the Holy Spirit to help make you holy. Do you notice his name? Little moment, church, right? What kind of spirit is he? What do you reckon he wants to do if he's living in you? Make you, you guys are getting this, it's fantastic, all right? 
Okay, so if you say to the Holy Spirit, you dwell in me, what do you want to do? You want to make me holy. So ask him, make me more holy than I have been before. You know, one of our values is to be enduring. And we have a question that we ask. We ask, where am I in danger of falling? Where am I weak and in danger of falling? And I want you to think on that question. Not so you go, oh, don't let anyone know. I'm weak and in danger of falling. No, we all are. But if you know what it is, ask God to be at work there strengthening you. What would be the outcome of that? Ready for a new language, church? You will begin to mortify your sin. Be killing it or it will be killing you. There's a third thing that I reckon all of us can do, and that's to learn to look up. We need to learn to look up more. We need to develop a habit of holy longing. Long for your home. Long for God's family. Long for it to be built up. Do we have a heavenly longing? We need to develop a habit of that, and we need to make space for holy inputs. Where am I actually getting fed? I need to read God's word. I need to pray. I need to hang out with his people. And if there's no time for that. Now, but you know what? You're in church this morning. So guess what you've done? You have made a choice this morning to invest in one of those holy inputs, which right now is causing you to look up. Keep doing that, church. Treasure Jesus. If you do this, the outcome is that you will grow deeper with Jesus. It's Father's Day, right? So I had to put a little Father's Day illustration in. Um, I was reading an article, popped up in my phone. You'll be surprised to know, right? Earthly inputs. Okay. And this guy, he said, I was getting podgy on my way towards turning 40. And I made a vow that I'd have abs by the time I was 40. Now there's a holy goal. Is that right? And so what he did, guess what? He didn't go running marathons the first day. He said, I cut out sugar and bread, which I both love. He said, I did that first. And then I started to walk around the block. And I kept doing those things, and I built up a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. And then here is the magnificent outcome of all of that application. Abs on his 40th birthday. And you go, wow, I can't wait to have some abs. That must be the application of the sermon. No. What if the tiny little changes I make today lead me to have spiritual abs in the future, right? That you might be spiritually strong that you might look ready for the return of your Savior on the day that he comes back. You see, guys, we aren't at New Life on about morality. Morality looks at sin and says, don't sin, naughty people, don't sin. And that isn't what Paul just did. What we are on about New Life is, you'll be surprised to know, New Life. And New Life looks to Jesus. New life looks to Jesus and says, if I'm new, make me new. Not look at sin and don't sin. Look at Jesus and work out the implications for your life that you love your Savior and you want to be ready for the day of his return. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for Jesus' finished work, that he's seated at your right hand in the heavenly realms. Father, would you lift our hearts and minds to you? Would you help us to make little incremental changes? Would you help us to be active about killing sin that we might be lifting up our Saviour and our Lord? Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, there you go. You know what? Jesus is very, very helpful for us. He wants us to have our minds lifted up to the heavenly places. And some of us like reading, great. Some of us like praying, awesome. Some of us love fellowship, fantastic. And then as a people gathered together, Jesus actually